It is truly a joy to be with you all this morning and an honor and a privilege to be able to open God's Word with you today. Um, We are in week three of our series that we've called What We Believe and Why We Believe It. Uh, This is a task we're taking as we start this new year uh, and as we start this new season of life at Faith Baptist Church to look at our statement of faith, to examine the claims that it makes, and to help give us an understanding of what it is we say we believe, and like we just said, why do we believe it? Why do we believe it? The topic at hand today from our statement of faith is on the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is no small task uh, we have before us. It's one that has caused great controversy and division uh, in the church throughout history uh, because it's a doctrine that we oftentimes struggle to comprehend um, in our own human way of thinking. God is big and we are small. Amen? And there's things about Him that we're going to struggle to comprehend on this side of eternity. Um, Kind of a funny uh, story with that. I'm not sure if any of you have seen the meme that's been popular in recent years of Santa Claus punching someone in the face. Anybody ever seen that one? No, anyway, so uh, the history of that is uh, ties back into exactly what we're talking about today. It ties into this topic of the Trinity. It ties into the nature of God. And uh, people think it's funny that Santa is slapping someone in the face because uh, the story, and it's, it's just a legend, is that St. Nicholas at the Council of Nicaea, where they're discussing this very topic, where we get the Nicene Creed that affirms God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, was so mad at Arius, this uh, heretic who was leading the charge, saying that uh, the Trinity did not exist in this way, that he stood up and slapped him in the face. So it's kind of taken on a life of its own now, uh, as we kind of uh, laugh at what that conflict may have looked like with the idea that St. Nicholas, uh, sort of the historic Santa Claus, uh, hitting someone in the face over this issue of the Trinity, right? Kind of a funny story to lead us off there, but to make the point that, again, this is a topic that uh, is difficult for us to understand, is difficult for us to work through, and probably in the short time we have today, I'm probably not going to be able to explain it uh, com- perfectly either, amen? So bear with me with that, and let's go ahead and tackle probably, again, one of the hardest topics for us to understand about God's nature in the Bible. Uh, to do that, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 3. So if you would please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to read uh, just a few short verses here and kind of uh, set our eyes onto the Scripture to help us sort of uh, form this picture and this understanding of this one God in three persons. Matthew chapter 3 in verse 13. Mm. Says this, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice uh, from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right. This week serves as an introduction to this topic of the Trinity, right? There's going to be some things we're not going to cover too in depth here today. Uh, We want to specifically look at these three persons of this one God, And uh, the beautiful thing is the next three uh, things in our statement of faith line up as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So if I don't cover something here today, 
we may get to it next week, okay? So just let's be patient and let's go ahead and see God uh, establishing this idea that he is one in three persons through the scripture, right? As this is uh, kind of the first of what ultimately is a small four-part series. Today, our main focus right now, though, is this historic Orthodox Christian belief that there is one God, and this one God exists eternally in three persons. That is the main idea that's up there on the screen for us to wrestle with today. This is the belief that we affirm as a church. It's in our statement of faith, and this is the belief the Christian church has uh, carried forward over the last 2,000 years on the nature of God. I'm sure most of us are probably familiar with this idea And even though I'm sure many of us don't think about this aspect of God's nature on a regular basis, I think we see that it's an idea that humans have struggled with from the earliest times. And it often causes us, because of our own inability to fully comprehend God's nature, this idea that we have one God, one single God, who exists in three persons. It causes us to kind of set this off the side and and leave it there and say, yeah, I believe that, I, I, I can kind of see maybe how that might work, but I'm not too worried about it right now at the moment, right? We're willing to affirm it because it's true in the scriptures, but so often we fail to see it as one of the beautiful and fundamental and influential aspects of who God is. We fail to see how it influences how we relate to one another and even the impact that it has on the nature of the gospel. Yes, that's the claim I'm making today. The Trinity, this doctrine that we affirm that we so often forget, it sits at the heart of the work of Yahweh to save sinners. As we leave here today at the end of this, hopefully we have a better affirmation of our God, who is one God, there is only one God, but exists in three persons. Hopefully we also better understand that how the nature of God, how this triune nature of God, it directs our faith, Right? It instructs us in living out our faith, and it instructs us in the message of the gospel. That's what we're going to do here today. That's what we're trying to accomplish. That's what we're trying to better understand. You go ahead and click the next slide, and let's take a look at what the statement of faith says. Here's what our statement of faith says. It says, the Trinity. We believe that there is one living and, triune, one living and true God, eternally existing in three persons, that these are equal and divine are the, that these are equal in every divine perfection and that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, providence, and redemption. This is what we tell the world what it is as a church we believe to be true about the nature of God. This is the doctrine of the Trinity sort of summed up in our own words here. This doctrine of the Trinity is one that makes Christianity stick out among religions and faiths because of the unique way in which we see the Bible talk about the identity of God. The claim of of Christians as we have worked through the Scripture and have worked to better understand our great and glorious God is that God is one. We cannot deny that. There is no uh, wiggle room on that. God is one. He is one God. Monotheism sits at the heart of the Christian faith. There are not a plurality of gods. There is not a pantheon of gods. There are not three gods. There is one God. And the scripture is clear on this from Genesis to Revelation that God reveals himself to be one. Isaiah 46, 9 tells us, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. 
And in Isaiah 42, 8, God declares, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So when we look at the Scripture and we see Yahweh over and over again telling us that He is the only God, there are no others, and His glory and His praise belong to Him alone, and He will not stand for anyone usurping that. And this is why as Christians, as we stand on our word, affirm absolutely that God is one, that there is only one true and living God. But how does God reveal himself to us in his scripture? Because as we see God from Genesis to Revelation, he declares himself as the one and only God. But we see throughout the entirety of the Bible that God shows himself to be more than just a single person, right? He talks about himself and he interacts with people in ways that kind of make us ponder the question, how did you do that, God? How are you here and there? And what is, what is that? It causes us to say that there's something interesting and unique about this one and only God that exists. This nature of God that we believe and affirm for us in the scripture reveals that God, the God we worship, is unique and distinctive from every other God that's out there. This is a truly unique aspect of the Christian faith. And it's led to much criticism throughout history. Because this revelation of God is so peculiar, peculiar to humanity, and in so many ways is beyond our human logic and understanding, that many have taken this as a point to criticize Christianity. And it's caused others to create false understandings of who God is, that are more palatable to our human minds. And it's caused others to abandon the faith once for all delivered to the saints to create their own cults with a doctrine on the nature of God that attempts to remove the air of mystery that the idea of the Trinity presents to Christians. I told you one day I won't need this water. Mm. Not today. The first thing we must understand as we do our work to better comprehend this doctrine of who our God is, is that we absolutely affirm what we just said. God is one. We do not believe in three gods. He is one God that eternally exists as three persons. God is and always has been Father, Son, and Spirit. The Christian church has long described the three persons of the the Trinity of being of the same substance. These are not different people made up of different things. This is one God, one substance, separated as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we make this attempt to describe the three persons that make up the triune God this way to make sure that we stress that these three are eternal, these three are equal, and yet even though they have um, what we described in our statement of faith, they share in that uh, uh, the glory of who God is, they all have distinct roles and characteristics. This is not three gods that we worship. That's an error called tritheism. This is not one God who appears in different forms at different times. That's something called modalism. And when you think about Jesus praying in the New Testament, it really doesn't make sense how modalism would work because if Jesus is just a different form of God the Father, who's he praying to when he goes to his knees to pray to Father? Now, we believe in one God who exists in three persons. This is a common point of contentions for Christians in the world. For instance, Muslims will often challenge Christians on this belief. 
They'll try to make out the doctrine of the Trinity to be unbiblical because the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. And what is this thing about three and one? This, this doesn't make sense. That's not monotheism. That's the claim that's made. And yes, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's a word that dates back to roughly the year 200. So I think the first appearance of that word Trinitas that we have. And people started to use this term as a means to attempt to give a description to what it is we read in Scripture in regards to God's revelation of Himself. That's why that word is what it is. It's not in the Bible. That's true. It's a word that we use to help us understand what we read in Scripture. We see other criticisms. We see Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, uh, Oneness and Unitarians all reject the idea that God is trying in His nature. And given that this group rejects that these, not this group, they're not together, but they do share this uh, fundamental distinction of rejecting the idea of the Trinity, it's no surprise that at the heart of all of their beliefs is a very different gospel message than the gospel we have in the Bible. Make no mistake about that today. One thing for us, if you remember anything else about this doctrine of the Trinity that we confess to be true, it is an absolutely critical component of the message of the gospel. So what does our Bible say about this idea that God is one, that exists in three persons? Let me go ahead and click to the next slide now, too. This is one God in three persons, and we're going to do a very quick uh, look at a couple of scriptures to see this. One of the most well-known Bible verses um, in the Old Testament that asserts that Yahweh is in fact the only true God is Deuteronomy 6. And after giving us the Ten Commandments in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, we now have in chapter 6 this instruction to all of Israel to instruct their children in the law of the Lord. And as we read verses 1 through 4, we're going to see that the first and most important thing, of the first and most important element of that instruction that Yahweh gives us to be passed on is the understanding that He is the one and only God and there is no other. If you want to open up your Bible, Deuteronomy 6 with me really quick. Let's go ahead and just read that together. Flip back to the front of the book. I cheated because I left it in my notes. So, Our Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 to 4, it says this, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I have commanded you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This absolute affirmation of monotheism here in Deuteronomy 6, that there is only one God, it comes at a time in Israel's history where they are beginning to move closer to the promised land. That journey they've made through the wilderness is beginning to come to an end, and they're getting ready to go into this land that God has promised them, the land that God promised to Abraham. This land right now that is inhabited by people that have a multitude of false gods and idols. 
So we have this instruction here to Israel that they must not fail to instruct their children and the people and the knowledge that God is one as they walk into this place with all kinds of false gods and false idols ever around them. He tells the people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's never been any other gods but Him. He tells Israel that. It's an interesting thing we see in Scripture, though. And we see it in the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis 1. This curious thing we have in the creation, we see God doing something that would probably surprise us when we think about God being one. We see God interacting with someone. In Genesis 1, 26, this culmination of His creation as He's making man, we have it recorded that God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who's God talking to? Because there appears to be a conversation going on with God. So who is he speaking to? Some say he's speaking to angels or to the heavenly host, which I think is, is wrong because he says, let us make man in our image. Man is not made in the image of angels, as you see right there in Genesis. Man is made in the image of God. And here we're beginning to see this picture right at the beginning, right at the very first words of our Bible, that there is more to God's nature as the one and only God, than what we might assume at our first glance. Beyond this creation account, I think we see a record of God conversing amongst Himself, right? We see it again in Genesis 3, where He says, when man falls, that behold, man is like one of us. Right? You see the plural uh, language there as God describes Himself. And we also see throughout all of the Old Testament a description of this Messiah that God has promised to come to Israel. And we see all of this language that tells us that this Messiah who's coming is going to be none other than God Himself. Isaiah 9.6 is a text that clearly points to the coming Messiah. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulders, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Look at the names that God tells us, or that Isaiah gives us, to this child that's going to be born to sit on the throne of David. Mighty God, everlasting Father, These are names Isaiah is giving to describe the coming Messiah to Israel. We know one thing already about Yahweh. These are names that He would share with no one else. Isaiah 43.11 repeats this same theme, that the Lord is the Savior of Israel. There Isaiah says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. The Lord is the Savior of Israel. Hosea 13.4 says almost the exact same thing. Here it's recorded, it says, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Psalm 3.8 tells us this, Salvation 
belongs to the Lord. It's an interesting thing in the Bible because God clearly describes Himself as one throughout the Old Testament. But we see these pictures, even as He describes Himself as one, of conversations among God. And we see the use of plural forms of words to describe God. Just like we said in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. In Genesis 3, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And as we consider Jesus, who we affirm as the Messiah sent by God to bring about forgiveness of sins and to rescue the people of God, we see throughout the Old Testament names and claims about this Messiah that would lead us to believe that the Messiah who is coming will be God Himself. That's what we see in the Old Testament. That's what we're looking forward to. Well, not us. That was what Israel was looking forward to. That's what we look back on now, and that's why we see these texts and these promises that God is coming to save Himself. Now we ascribe divinity to Jesus as well. How is this possible? How is it possible for us to expect a king in the line of David to rule and reign over God's people and to see this king be God Himself? How does that happen? Beyond me, right? Let's take a look back at Matthew 3 that we read just a minute ago and the baptism of Jesus, and let's examine for a few minutes exactly what's happening here for us. So if you close your Bibles or you flipped away, flip back with me to, to Matthew 3 and let's read this again together. Verse 13. Then John came from Galilee to the Jordan, or then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. John the Baptist is this one who is preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. Right? He's a voice in the wilderness. There are so many illusions that this promise of Elijah coming before the Messiah, it is John the Baptist. And now he's out at the Jordan River, and he's calling people to repentance and baptizing them in water as a sign of this repentance. This man John, who has been recognized as this prophet, which is no small feat at this moment in Israel's history, because John is the first prophet, the first one here speaking in the name of the Lord in 400 years to Israel. This man, John, who is this prophet, sees Jesus coming to the river and his response is, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. You want me to baptize you? This prophet to Israel looks at Jesus and says, whoa, hold up. It's not right. I shouldn't baptize you. Right? You should be baptizing me. What is it about Jesus that makes John hesitant to baptize him? This man, we said it, he's a prophet, the first one speaking to Israel in the name of the Lord in a very, very long time. Yet John the Baptist acknowledges that there is something different about you, Jesus. And I know the authority that you carry to do the work that you're doing. And I know this work is being done in submission to the one who is coming to John because he says it's being done 
to put all things in order. But here in this passage, we see this very first sign that there is something very unique about this person of Jesus who has come to this spot to be baptized. And we see this trembling and fear exhibited by John the Baptist as he looks at Jesus and says, you're the one whose sandal I am not worthy of untying. There's something special and unique about Jesus here. And we see that in this response of this prophet, John. Let's see what happens with this man, Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I think here in these two verses, we get to see a picture of all three persons of the Trinity. We have Jesus in the flesh, in the water, with John the Baptist, being baptized. We have the Spirit descending from the heavens that have opened in the form of a dove. Notice it says, not like a dove, or it says like a dove, not as a dove. Some of those kids' Bible pictures need to correct themselves, right? Because this is not some impersonal force that's just falling, that's taken some shape. No, this is the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus. We see that. It says uh, in, this, in this verse here, in uh, verse 16, it says the Spirit of God. And this name that it gives the Spirit of God is the exact same wording in the Greek that we see in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples at Pentecost. This is the Holy Spirit coming to rest upon Jesus. And finally, in verse 17, we have the Father in heaven who announces to the world that the one here who has been baptized, the one whom John wanted to turn away because he, he knew he was not worthy to be doing the action that he was undertaking, this one in the water with John is God's beloved Son. It's beautiful here that in these two short verses in Matthew 3, we see a picture with all three persons of God at work in this moment. We hear the Father announce that His Son, that Jesus is His Son. We see Jesus standing before us in the flesh, and we see the Holy Spirit descending onto Jesus. The Father is not in the water, but it is the Son that is in the water. The Father and the Son are not descending from heaven, but it is the Spirit that comes down from heaven to rest on Jesus. And the Son is not speaking from heaven, but it is the Father who declares who Jesus truly is. Here in this moment, in the waters of Jordan, we see this revelation about the nature of God, where we see the one true and living God before our very eyes as three distinct persons. And when we see the three persons of the Trinity at work in this one passage, I think this is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that helps us better shape our understanding that God is truly one who is three distinct, eternal, and equal persons. If you would go ahead and flip over to John 8 with me, and let's read a few verses here. This is an incredibly important passage in the New Testament as we see Jesus make a claim about himself that is easy to miss. But once we see it, 
we're going to know exactly who Jesus is. So John chapter 8, flip over to there with me, please. R.C. Sproul once said, I'm hearing Baptist air conditioning right now. All right, John 8, starting at verse 48. We're going to read through verse 59. This says, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to, you, said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not but fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Here Jesus is doing battle with some Jews who are accusing him of doing works by the power of demons. And in his response, in his response to this, this, uh, this attack, he talks of what? His relationship with the Father. How He is working to honor the Father. And that the Father is working to bring glory to the Son. And these Jews point out to Jesus that He's making claims that no man has the authority to ever make. And for example, in verse 50, that Jesus has said, if they want to, Jesus has said in verse 50, if they want to live and not say death, they'll keep His words. And the answer is that by saying, but Abraham and the prophets died, right? So who do you think you are, Jesus? Who are you to tell us to follow your words and we won't die? And that's where we get, I think, the single greatest claim to Jesus' divinity in the New Testament. Verse 58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And John records that they picked up stones to kill him. Why do they do this? Why do they want to stone Jesus at this point? What has he done? If Jesus wasn't who he said he was, he's a blasphemer. And he should be put to death right then and there. Where do we see that phrase, I am? Especially talking to this group of Jews here who have this knowledge and this love for their history. They knew who Moses was. They knew what Moses did. They knew Moses was before the burning bush and said, if I go to this people, God, who am I supposed to tell him sent me? 
Tell them, I am sent you. I think this wording was deliberate on Jesus' part. I think it was there to establish His authority, His eternality to this group of of men who were calling Him and saying that everything He was doing was done by the power of demons. Because if we look at the words Jesus used to describe Himself before Abraham was, I am, He is making a claim to be something that no man could ever, no mere man could ever possibly be. In other parts of the Gospels, Jesus tells us that He and the Father are one. When Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection, and He shows up and Thomas sees Him, He calls for Thomas to put His fingers inside the holes in His hands. And what does Thomas proclaim in that moment? He looks at Jesus and He says, My Lord and my God! To which Jesus does not give a rebuke. I think the Bible makes it clear who Jesus is and who He claims to be. In John 16, we see this picture of Father, Son, and Spirit again. As Jesus tells His disciples that He is going back to the Father who sent Him, going going back, I think, number one, indicates that Jesus has been there before. You don't go back to somewhere you've never been, right? You and I can't go back. We've never been there. Our lives started here on this earth. But Jesus is going back to be with the Father. And when He's gone, He tells His disciples that it's going to be good for them. It's going to be better for them. Why in the world? You have God in the flesh amongst you, walking with you. Why would it be better for Him to go back to heaven to be with His Father? Because Jesus says He's sending the Helper. He's sending what verse... 13 there describes as the spirit of truth. Jesus, the Son of God, is going back to the Father and He's sending the Holy Spirit to help and comfort and reveal truth to the disciples. He's not truly going away. But it's time for the third person of the Trinity to come and act in the life of the disciples. This is a very, very short selection of scriptures that we have here today, and um, I've already been going too long in recent weeks, so um, I don't think it's possible to do justice to the picture of the nature of God in this short amount of time when we gather together on a Sunday morning. I think my hope right now, as we have walked through those verse by verse, is that we see God is truly one. That is Absolutely 100% true, but we see this amazing God, we see the amazing truth that we have God revealing Himself as existing in three persons over and over again throughout the Scripture, through the Old Testament into the New Testament. The New Testament, I think, gives us a fuller picture of what that looks like, but the picture is the same. And while it's one thing to ponder this nature of God that is so foreign to us and so beyond just our own human means of understanding. There are real implications for us as Christians in our everyday lives and as believers in Jesus Christ to grasp this truth, to not let go of this truth, to say, I believe this truth, and it's good, and it's beautiful, and it shows me who God is. God's triune nature is more than just some kind of majestic picture for us, right? Right? It's not like 
stepping out at night and looking up the stars and seeing this beautiful picture of this night sky that God has made that's so much bigger than us that just leaves us in awe, right? It's not, it's not that. We don't just look at the Trinity just to awe and reverence God. That is a part of it. Sometimes it definitely is that, right? But in the triune God, we have real, we have real implications for our lives. Real implications for the message of the gospel. And I think as we get ready to close, I want to just take a look at, at two of those things right now for us. My first point on the screen there says the community and relationship inside the Trinity. Inside the triune God, we see community and we see relationship. And we get the privilege of trying to emulate that, of emulating not just what God calls us to be, but the very nature of God himself, right? Being that God is triune and that God is one God in three co-equal eternal persons who have distinct roles, we see God have everything he needs in and of himself. God is never lonely. Just like God is never hungry. God never has any need of want. He lacks nothing. He has everything he needs in and of himself. And that includes this relationship and this community in the Godhead. Thinking of this idea that in the triune God there is never any sense of loneliness, it initially caused me to think back to God's statement in the garden when he made Adam. When he looked at Adam, what did he say? It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. God knows what's good. He is good. God is never alone. It also reminds me of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, where we're told, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are made in the image of God, and a part of that is that we are not made to just be alone. We are not made to be off by ourselves, lone wolves wandering around a hopeless world full of despair. We are made to be in relationship with one another. We are made to be in community with one another. We are made to come together as one body to lift our hands and to sing praises to Yahweh. Because it's good for man to not be alone. God knows it's good for man to not be alone because he's not alone. As we see God reveal himself for who he is, inside this community, there is a perfect unity of these three persons who are the one God. We see perfect love. We see no sense of jealousy. We see no sense in any of these being lesser than not the Father, not the Son, not the Holy Spirit. All with distinct roles, but all submitting themselves to the will of God. All bringing glory to the other. We see as an aspect of God's character that I think we should strive to emulate. This is the kind of love and submission that when we emulate in our marriages and we emulate with our coworkers and we emulate with each other and we emulate with our neighbors that can radically transform the world around us, radically transform our relationships with the people around us. Trying to emulate this harmony of God with those who we share relationships with 
and bring radical transformation to that because we are striving to do what the Bible tells us to do, to emulate God, to be like Him, to be like our Savior. I think in this, in, in the community, in the relationship, the perfect unity of God, I think we also see purpose and meaning to our relationships that are far greater than just some kind of social contract. We see a greater design to institutions like marriage. Because for example, in the instance of marriage, we see an illustration of the Gospel and of the way that the persons of the Trinity relate to one another. We see them lay out a pattern of how we're to treat one another, right? It's easy to see that inside of a marriage, isn't it? Because the Bible tells us these things about marriage. But there's greater purpose and meaning to our relationships than just whatever society says is sort of a general benefit for being in community. This is patterning ourselves and our lives after our God. This lays out a pattern of how we're to treat one another. And that's something we should strive for. And I think Philippians 2 tells us as much. Here in Philippians 2, we, we hear these words. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We serve a triune God right there, amen? I think the language is dripping in there. And not only that, look at what we are called to do and called to be. And ask yourself right now, where do we see the perfect, the perfect representation of that to us? Where do we see perfect affection, sympathy? Where do we see a perfect sense of being of the same mind, of the same love, in full accord, in one mind? Where do we see not selfish ambition or conceit, but humility and counting others more significantly than yourselves? Like we see that in, in, in God and in His triune nature, in those three persons as one God. Second Philippians tells us as much. This is the pattern of how we're to live and to treat one another. This is the nature of our relationships with one another that God has laid out. And it's Him we're to emulate. And the Trinity, and this understanding of the Trinity, that this is not just one God, but this is one God, three persons in perfect harmony, each enacting their distinct roles, gives us a meaning and a purpose and a pattern to live for that goes far beyond any sort of meaning we would try to imbue into it through our own sort of mindsets or, or social constructs. Last thing for us, and I know we said this early on, that if, if we only saw one thing 
out of why we believe the Trinity, why it's so important as for us to see that the message of the gospel itself depends on this unique nature of God. The message of the gospel is that mankind are rebels against God, against the God who made them, people who reject God and chase after their own idols, in love with their sin and consumed by their own selfishness. But God didn't leave man in this hopeless condition. God sent His Son to live and to die as a substitutionary atonement and to raise again to show that He is God and has authority over sin and death and the devil. Do you see it? The gospel only works with a triune God. Without Jesus coming to earth, taking on flesh to be that substitutionary atonement, we have no gospel. Without the Father in heaven pouring out His wrath on sin, pouring it onto the back of the only one who could ever really take the full punishment of sin, without God the Father in heaven, we have no gospel. Without the Holy Spirit going forth in the world, regenerating dead people to new life, taking hearts of stone and turning them into the hearts of flesh like described in Ezekiel. Without this work of the Spirit, we have no gospel. God is at work in such a way in the gospel that the message of the gospel has all three persons of God, of our one God, acting to bring salvation and new life to people who were once God's enemies. This is a core aspect of the nature of God. And I think if we think about cults that have developed out of Christianity over the years, um, like the Latter-day Saints or like Jehovah's Witnesses, we look at these groups, both of these groups have rejected the belief that God is one God in three persons. And the ideas they have come up with for who Jesus are and who the Holy Spirit are are very different. And as a result, at the heart of these faiths is not a message of the gospel of grace that we rejoice in today. At the heart of both of those faiths is a message of works righteousness. The gospel depends upon God being one in three persons. With three persons acting in different roles to work in our lives in different ways to ultimately bring us back to bring praise and worship to Him. I know the Trinity is not the easiest belief for us to wrap our minds around. And even with the best possible attempt to explain this belief we share, which I'm sure uh, my feeble attempt today was not that, even with the best attempt of God to explain God and His nature, it's going to fall short because we're men and we're women and we're small. And we're staring at a sight that is so far beyond our own intellect and understanding that even though we hear this and we believe it and we confess it unashamedly, and there are elements to this belief that we know are critical to our day-to-day lives and they impact how we love our wives and our neighbors and the world around us, even though we say all those things are true, we're still not probably going to fully understand it until that day we're face-to-face with God. And that's okay. Because like I said before, we're small. God is big. And we believe that God is able to be in ways that are not explainable in perfect human terms. 
Let's not forsake this belief, though. This is what we have confessed to be true. This is what we believe, and I hope I've laid out a case for why we believe it. We see it in our Bibles. And even though it's difficult to understand, let's not lay aside this doctrine today, but let's appreciate God and all His majesty for His triune nature and what He's done through it. Let's pray. Father, we come before You this morning and we praise You, God. You are uh, unique and You are uh, special and You are something that, Lord, we uh, strive and we claw and we fight our way to better understand You, Father. Lord, You are beautiful. Lord, without You, God, we would be hopeless. We would be lost in our sin. So, Father, we praise You, God, for the Gospel. Praise You for the message that You've given, Father, Son, and Spirit, working in our lives to redeem us, to make us Your children in faith. So, Father, we praise You for the work You've done praise you for revealing yourself to us the way that you have. God, I pray that you deal with our minds, Lord. Help us to, to accept the difficult truths of this. Help us to see the beauty and why we should confess and believe this doctrine about who you are. And Lord, I just pray, do your work in us right now, Lord, so that, Father, we would be people that want to be like you, that want to live to display your goodness to a world that desperately needs to see that there is a good God in heaven. Father, we praise you and we thank you. Thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, Lord, opening our eyes to our sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.